0: let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pause as we continue our worship to acknowledge that all that we read this morning from Your precious Word that Your Holy Spirit will uh, take and uh, will pierce our hearts, will open our minds, and will transform and change us more into the image of Your Son and our Savior. And uh, Lord, that this week we would be more like Him. And we pray it in his most precious name, Amen. You know when I eat food, Pete. Why is it always about food? Well, I don't know. But you know when I eat food, um, it becomes a part of me. Have you noticed? Some of you are not looking at me. For example, when I eat, me personally, when I eat lots of sugar-laden food, you will eventually, clearly. See it on my outside. You you will. You will notice it. And I will absolutely be able to tell on my inside. It just doesn't go over well. But when I consume calcium-rich, laden foods, um, my body, I understand, takes it and uses it to strengthen and build my bones, and I should reap the benefits of eating those kinds of foods um, as I age. Right? You heard that? So food is an integral part of who I am. Food is an integral part of who you are. When I trusted in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior when I was 18 years old, He connected me. He connected me to Himself. And He did it in a deep, inseparable way. You should be able to tell about that about me on the outside. I sure know it on the inside. When someone does not trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord or Savior, they're not connected to Him in any way. And you can usually tell, and they absolutely can tell. And through the first six chapters of the Gospel of John that we've been doing over the last six weeks, Jesus has been describing this phenomena, this spiritual phenomena, and He's been describing these connections that we all can have, and He's describing them as death and life. You're either connected to death or you're connected to life. Uh, he's described them in, in terms of darkness and light. He's described them very clearly with using water that is only temporal in its fulfillment. It's great, but it's only temporal, and He's compared it to water that flows eternally. We become what we eat, both physically and spiritually. Last week, Jesus continued with these metaphors, and that's why He's sometimes really hard to understand, at least the people felt that way, and maybe some of you do today. He used metaphors to describe our connection with Him in John 5.56. Let me read it for you. Whoever feeds on my flesh, that's vivid, right? Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, (laughs) what, abides in me and I in him, abides, connected, and he wasn't talking about taking communion as some other in, others in the Christian community take this. He was talking about the literal and very real connection that we as followers of him have if we are followers of him. And what blows me away as I read these passages, especially this verse I just read, is that he also goes on to describe his connection, his The Son of God, Jesus' connection with God the Father just as strongly. I mean, check it out. The the exact same word, abides, that I just read in John 6.56 is found later spoken by Jesus in John 14.10 where He says, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Same Greek word, translated abides and dwells. Same thing, same connection. So what that tells me is like the Father and the Son are inseparable in the triunity of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I can never be separated from God. That's how secure I am. That's bold, right? What a bold statement. We who trust in Jesus Christ alone are eternally secure in Jesus Christ. We have got nothing to fear Nothing at all. Who can separate us from the love of God? No. Nothing. No one. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Nada. So it becomes really clear as we all go through um, what Jesus is talking about, this, as he talks about this connection thing, this, this feeding on himself, drinking his blood thing, that he means the same thing as believing in him. It's the same thing. Because starving people will hungrily devour food that is given to them, right? We, We all know this. This is just a fact of life. They know it. They can even feel that they're hungry. It affects every part of their being. And knowingly lost and helpless sinners that every one of us in this room was born into will hungrily throw ourselves upon the only Savior, when it is finally revealed to us, when it finally dawns on us, that He is the only food that can really fill us. Many of those who describe themselves as Jesus' disciples had a difficult time accepting Jesus' metaphors <laughs> or, or even understanding what He was talking about. Just as hard a time as His critics did. Look at, look at 6, verse 60. 6, verse 60. When many of His disciples heard this, about feeding on His flesh and drinking His blood, they said, this is a hard saying. (laughs) Guys, come on. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before. If you really understood this and saw where I'm actually from, and they are going to, right? Those who remain loyal are going to see Him ascend after His uh, resurrection. Then what if you were to see Him ascend? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help. You guys, you are so earth-centered, You're probably sitting there listening to my talk and you're thinking about, where's lunch? No one here, right? No one's thinking, no no, no one just had that thought. And I know. I am. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. It's not about now. It's not about this world and what a mess it is. That's important, but it's not the thing. But there are some of you who don't believe. That's what I really care about. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who was going to betray him. John adds that in because he was there. He watched the downfall of Judas Iscariot. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Unless the God the Father opens up your eyes to these truths, to these metaphors, you're not going to get it. This is all about God's grace in His mercy. So, so from where comes our help? Um, not only in everyday living, like what you're going to do this afternoon, but in your salvation, which is far more important. My help comes from the Lord. Does yours? Although the miracles that people sometimes will say to me, why doesn't God just write it on the sky? Because then I would believe. Why doesn't God do all the same miracles He did back there in the Old Testament and during Jesus' time? These miracles are utterly spectacular, right? They're utterly spectacular to read about and to behold, but even these miracles, Jesus says, performed by Jesus, the Son of God Himself, are not enough. They're not enough to gain allegiance to Him. They're not enough to get saved and follow Him. They're not enough even to endure or even understand His teaching. Now we come to the passage Jason Jason read earlier in verse 66, it starts, chapter 6, verse 66. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. So Jesus said to the (laughs) twelve, He's got twelve left, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And he was, John says, adds here, he he was speaking about Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So, last week at the beginning of chapter 6, we began with a crowd of approximately up to 20,000 people who Jesus fed with a couple fish and a couple pieces of bread. All of them. Remember that? And at the end of John chapter 6, we conclude with around a dozen. So, that's what miracles will do for you. Thousands witnessed a stunning miracle. Thousands heard Jesus Christ speak Himself about who He was, and thousands rejected Him and walked away. So after more than two years of public ministry, presenting Himself to people, many people couldn't grasp His spiritual message. Again, i got to ask, do you? Are you getting this? Does this move you? Does this rock your world because it's supposed to? Or are you stuck? Are you stuck still seeing this church thing that we do? Are you still stuck seeing this faith thing that we talk about and throw around, even in our songs? Are you still stuck seeing it all as finding physical relief right now, in the here and now, and that's the end of it? By the time we get to the end of chapter 6, the true disciples have revealed themselves. But even with the true disciples, what, do you, what did you notice? There's one who's going to betray Him at this point. But they were hanging in there. They recognized Jesus for who He really was. They were acknowledging that nothing compares to Jesus. It just doesn't. And Simon Peter said it so well, didn't he? where where would we go? I mean, what's the point of everything else? What's the point of going to school? What's the point of setting aside retirement funds? What's the point of raising kids? What's the point of going to lunch this afternoon without you? It's all meaningless. It's all… exactly. The dangerous truth, though, bear this in mind, is that it is possible to think that you are part of this family when all along you are not. John points out that that's the tragedy of Judas. So now we're in chapter 7. Let's see how far we get today. We find Jesus in Jerusalem again, and what you'll find with John's presentation is that every time that Jesus shows up in Jerusalem, it's usually around a very symbolic feast, and He's there for a reason, and He plays off of the reason that all the other Jews in the country and sometimes from around the world are there for these pilgrimages. This one is called the Feast of Booths. <laughs> it's not like the booth we have out in our lobby. This, this is like a, like, a, like a constructed, rustic tent. Okay? It's a, it's, a, it's a tent, a tabernacle, feast of booths. Verse 11, then the Jews were looking for him at that feast, and they were saying, where is he? Maybe he's going to do another miracle. Wouldn't that be awesome? And there was much muttering about him among the people. You see how things are changing? Some said he's a good man. Others said, no, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, so this is about it's a seven, eight-day celebration, so this is around, around three, four, five days into it. Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching, finally shows up. And the Jews, therefore, marveled when they heard him teaching. Here's what they said. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? This guy never attended any of our rabb- rabbinical schools. He didn't go to Harvard. He didn't go to Yale. He didn't even go to U of M. He didn't even go to state. Not that I'm making an order here. I just want you to… Calm down. Calm down, green. Yet he taught with such skill and such authority that the people were amazed by his wisdom. But his critics always wondered. They couldn't accept that. They always wondered, where is he from? Where where does he get this authority from? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, because I know that's what you're thinking, but his who sent me. See, the answer is so simple, but boy, is it ever profound. He didn't hide behind human teachers like many of us do. So how do you know that's what the Bible says? Well, this author says that this, and I just read this devotional, and in this commentary it says Jesus didn't do that. Jesus said He went straight to the source of all wisdom. He went to what God the Father Himself has said. That's what He was preaching out of the Old Testament. Verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, how many of you, you don't have to put your hand up, how many of you really desire to do God's will? If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Jesus said that the reason why people don't believe in Him is not to do with their intellect, how smart they are, where they went to school, whether they went to school. It has to do with their will, your will, my will. The greatest obstacle to hearing, understanding, and believing what Jesus is saying is not whether you're educated or uneducated, but but that the main reason why you can't get into the teachings of Jesus is because you have a basic flaw in your nature, just like they did, just like I do. And it predisposes us against God. We all have it. It's a three-letter word that begins with an S. Very, very good, yes. Just kind of rules off the tongue, doesn't it? Sin. Verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus pointed out the difference between himself and all the other rabbis who were teaching in that day because there are so many teachers, and don't you notice this even today, that there are so many people who are keen to show off how much they know, and they just like to hear themselves speak and ramble on, how cleverly they can manipulate the arguments, how how they can deliver these facts fascinating messages that just draw you in. And then there's Jesus. And His sole commitment is to glorify God the Father. That's it. Not His own popularity, not His own prestige. If He knows it's going to hurt, He says it anyway, because it's the truth. And He says it in love. Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law? Yeah. Okay. Yet none of you keeps the law, Let's just talk real now. Why do you seek to kill me? He throws that in, and the crowd goes, you have a demon. Who is seeking to keep, uh, kill you? Their assumption is that Jesus is paranoid. He's suffering from possibly delusions of grandeur. Mark chapter 3 verse 22 tells us that they are, they are actually charging Him with being actively in league with the devil. Because how else can you say this thing that goes against what we think (laughs) and be true? And yet do all these miracles. How can you do this? Verse 21, Jesus answered them, I did one work. I think He even did this. I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Jesus reminds them of the last time He was in Jerusalem. The one miracle was the healing of the man who had been paralyzed for about 38 years. That one work evoked astonishment in the crowds, but not the astonishment that leads to praising God, the astonishment that someone would actually tell a man to pick up his mat and walk around, openly defying Sabbath day laws the accepted norms of how we're supposed to act on Sunday. There was Saturday. And to drive the argument further into their hearts, Jesus shows how these religious leaders would even change their own laws if it suited their own purposes. Does that sound familiar? Okay, I got one for you. Do you ever, do you ever go 75 in a posted 70 miles an hour? That's nobody's putting their hand up. Okay, wait, 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 just one second, just one second. Officer Rob, (laughs) would you, would you just close your eyes? Let me ask it again. Does anybody go 75 in a 70? Yeah, and the rest of you are liars, or you don't drive. (laughs) You ever been in a car that went 75 or something? Okay, let me ask you this. I'm not trying to be put a guilt trick on you all. On on on, well, I am. But what's your reasoning? Well, well, well I'm late. Um, I slept in. Uh, I'm in a hurry. There's nobody on the road. And anyway, that's they they post that. But Rob, they actually don't mean go 70, right? Yeah, yeah, just Yeah, you got you got a leeway. You can go 68 if you want. If it suits our own purposes, are we not tempted to do what is right in our own eyes? Yeah, we're just like these guys. Just like them. Verse 22, Moses gave you circumcision. And then he he clarifies, not that it's from Moses, by the way. You guys say it is, it's from God. And he gave it actually to Abraham and told him to circumcise all uh, Jewish boys on the eighth day after their birth. Now, if on the Sabbath... A man receives circumcision because that's the eighth day after he was born, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, but you're breaking another law to do that. Are you angry with me? You're angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. How ludicrous is this thinking? Do not judge by appearances. judge with right judgment. Hypocrisy never makes sense. Have you noticed? It doesn't make sense. An adult once told me when I was younger, teenager, that I shouldn't listen to rock music. And as a smart-aleck teenager, I came back with, do you listen to country music? Some of you are going, oh, don't go there. And it's amazing. I found it amazing how angry someone can get when you tread into their areas of pleasure. Oh, they feel free to tread into yours. But when you flip the table, especially little teenager, how arrogant and self-serving every one of us in this room can be when our own hypocrisy is put on trial. We get defensive, we get angry, we think up the stupidest reasons. And I did use that word correctly, stupidest. They lived under a hypocritical system. It was designed to make them feel better about themselves. So little wonder that the Jewish leaders would not accept the things that Jesus was saying and telling them straight up. Their hearts Their minds, their wills were predisposed to reject the things that glorify God, and they were naturally inclined, because of sin, towards the things that glorify themselves, just like you, just like me. Yeah, kind of like our world today. Verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, wait a minute, isn't this the man whom they are seeking to kill? So some people did realize that this was in the background. I remember, we touched on it a couple weeks ago. That the anger had got to the point of, we have to remove him permanently. And here he is speaking openly, and they're not saying anything to him. And the reason why you're saying, well, I thought they were. And he's responding. No, he read their minds. <laughs> he knew what they were thinking. And he just, and they're just like, oh my goodness, he can tell what I'm th- thinking. Like, Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Wow! What an analysis. Right on. This is a prediction. Verse 27, but we know where this man comes from. And when Christ appears, it it says in the Old Testament, no one will know where he comes from. He's just going to come to the temple and appear. It is coming. See, they think he's from Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. We know He was born in Bethlehem. But Jesus says, I'm actually from heaven. Verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed, as He taught in the temple, you know me, and He's saying this (laughs) tongue-in-cheek. You don't know me. Okay, You know me? Okay. And you know where I come from? (laughs) But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Can you imagine telling an Israelite from the tribe in the genealogy of Abraham, the children of God, that that they don't know God, the Father? I know him, verse 29, for I come from him and he sent me. They know exactly what he's saying here. He's from God, and He is God. So verse 30, So they were seeking to arrest Him, but, but no one laid a hand on Him, because His hour had not yet come. God was like, not yet. Yet many of the people believed in Him. I, I love that. They said, when the Christ appears, will He do more signs than this man has done? You see, they were, they were connecting the dots. And the dots gave the picture, this is the Messiah. They recognized that Jesus was the the deliverer whom God had promised. In verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things, and now they're like, they're freaking out. They're like, oh no, the worst possible scenario. They are wanting Him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers, that would be temple officers, these would be Levites who were given the role to be kind of the police of of the city, of the temple, sent these officers who would have known their Bible like the back of their hand too, to arrest Him. And you know, Jews all around the world, even today, still celebrate two important… they celebrate a number, but two very important national festivals that go back centuries. One of them is the Day of Atonement. In Hebrew, it's Yom Kippur. And on that day, the high priest would perform elaborate rituals and special sacrifice to atone to cover up temporarily, because it had to be done every year, the sins of the entire nation, for the sins of the people. Big day. It was not a ceremony to be taken lightly, because God wanted His people to understand that the atonement for sin had to be done His way. Then the second feast is the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, and this is the one where we've just read about Jesus attending in John 7. It's about six months before His crucifixion next time He comes to Jerusalem. It's about six months before His crucifixion, which is going to be around another holy day called Passover, right, Passover. This booth festival, as I said, was about seven or eight days. It celebrated. There was the harvest of olives and grapes, but deliberately tagged onto it were reminders about certain truths from their past. It's really similar to as you and I on the first Sunday of every month, we who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we celebrate communion, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, to remind us of the past, of what Jesus Christ has done. And all the men during the Feast of Booths were expected to live in structures, booths, that they had made out of sticks and branches. We call it rustic camping. And even if you lived in the metropolis of Jerusalem, You as a male were expected to go up to the flat roof of your house and for these seven or eight days you were to construct that booth up there and you were to sleep in there and and spend, spend your evenings in that during the festival days. And the reminder was this. When the Israelite nation was wandering through the wilderness, living in tents before they entered the promised land of Palestine, they were to remember what that was like. Not having a home. And as well as the regular sacrifices that took place during those seven days in the temple compound, there was this daily processional where the the high priest would come down from the temple to the Gion Spring, which was the only close-by clean uh, spring water source. And from it, he would fill a gold jug, he would walk back up to the temple mount, and he would come to the altar, and he would pour out the water around the altar. The point that happened every day was to remind the Israelites of the time when they were in the wilderness living in these tents, and they were dying of thirst. Do you remember that story in, in Exodus, and what happened? God provided water out of, a, out of a rock. Right, came out of a rock. Whoa. Whoa and quenched the thirst of the entire community that some historians put at possibly up to a million people. So God not only rescued people wandering in the wilderness in the past, but this whole seven-day event was our God can be trusted to do it again in the future. And the future they were waiting for was the Messiah the anointed one, the Christ. So the nation looked back, but it also looked forward. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, when he compares Jesus Christ to the rock that was in the wilderness. And he says, all that drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. It's a beautiful picture. And John records what happens next. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stands up and he cries out, if anyone thirsts, you think this water is something? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And just to make sure that we, the reader, don't overlook the significance of this imagery, John, the Apostle John, clarifies in verse 39, now this he said about the Spirit, that would be the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus points here to the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit of God the third person of the triune god who would very soon on another holy day pentecost which occurred 50 days after passover after jesus crucifixion which is only 6 months away so the sanhedrin after hearing this has heard enough and they get totally get what he's what he's saying about himself they just don't believe So they send officers to arrest him, but they don't arrest him. It's so wild. Verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, so where is he? We sent you to do something. You come back empty-handed. And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. These are guys who know their Bible further evidence of the incomparable wisdom and authority that Jesus was displaying. His every word and His every deed is a revelation of God the Father Himself. And the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Like, what is going? what kind of magic is going on here? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in Him? And they're looking around the room. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So that's their conclusion. This is what politicians nowadays do too. They say, you know, you common people, you don't, you don't know anything, you don't… You, but go ahead and vote, <laughs> dummies. So after the <laughs> exasperation of discovering that their own orders have not been obeyed, they vent their spleen <laughs> on these poor temple guards. They condemn them for acting like the crowd and say the sheer ignorance of people. That's why why people are so easily deceived, and that's why they vote the way they do. And John's irony is quietly chuckling in the background through all this episode. No, John is saying here, actually, it's not their ignorance that has allowed deception. It's yours. Verse 50, Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus? He's the guy from chapter 3 who came to visit Jesus at night. And Jesus, we heard… For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Nicodemus is one of the members of the Sanhedrin. So he, he stands up. In verse 51 he says, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? In verse 52 they replied, Nicodemus, are you a Galilean too? Are you one of these guys? Search the Scriptures and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And sadly, we often see this in ourselves and in others today when we get so worked up over something, something we want to be so right on, because if we're wrong on it, it's going to make us look bad. We're going to have to eat our own words, and we can't let that happen. So we can actually outright deny what is absolutely true fact before our eyes to justify ourselves? They're too worked up and too hostile to listen to reason anymore. So they say something that isn't even true just to shut up their opposition. They reply with contempt So you're from Galilee too, are you? And they know he's not. But they're implying that that can be the only possible explanation for such a strange outburst in defense of a Galilean. And by the way, there is no notion of a prophet not coming out of Galilee. Um, Jonah, Nahum, and they actually wrote Old Testament books. They both, they came from Galilee, plus a lot of others. And Judeans had such this such a deep bias against Galileans. It's like, it's like the Yankees versus the Red Sox. Nothing good to say about each other. It's like the Lions versus, well, pretty much everybody else. They simply cannot believe it that a prophet could come from such a lowly place. But in reality, Jesus is not so much a son of Galilee as the, as the authorities think. He's what? He's the son of God. <laughs> when I eat food, God has in His sheer wisdom and grace designed the food of this planet to become a part of me, it's something God has done and designed. It sustains me. It nourishes me. It It's a joy to consume. Amen? When I trusted in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, God has in His sheer wisdom and in His sheer grace connected me to Himself in a very deep and inseparable way. God sustains me. God nourishes me. He He is a joy to consume in His Word. I have a peace that I cannot explain. And I began the lifelong journey when God saved me of seeing the things of God in a way previously impossible to see. I was blind, really was. Without the light of God, I could not figure it out. He had to reveal it to me, and it was right in front of my face the whole time. And this is the reason God created Grace Chapel and many other assemblies across the world. This is the reason why, after your and my salvation, God did not take us home to be with Him, but He left us here to roam for Him and to share this good news. Is God moving in your heart today? Is God moving you to a place of trust in Him as your Lord and as Savior through Jesus Christ's death on the cross for your sin debt, which you can do nothing about? If He is, we have a members meeting coming up in just a couple minutes. I don't need to be at it. The elders already know how I'm going to vote. But I would love to meet with you. And take the time to explain more, answer your questions, or set up a time this week where we can meet. This is too big to pass on. Would you rise with me? We're going to sing and at the conclusion of the song. Uh, Matt will dismiss you all. And we would ask you...